you're going to climb Mount Everest. What's, what's the goal? And I, of course, said to get to the top. And he goes, wrong. I was like, uh-oh. I hate getting called out in groups anyways. And he goes, no, the answer is you want, you want to climb to the top. You want to summit and you want to come down safely. And he said, 80% of all deaths happen on the way down of Mount Everest than the way up. And when you go to sell a business, you only have the eyes on how to sell the business. You sell it, but what happens on the way down? Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Muela, and I'm here today for a fairly unprecedented, exciting episode. I'm talking to my man, Ben Sensenbaugh. Let's just get this thing out of the way. Right. Uh, ben, what's the news, brother? Well, uh, I mean, it's a longer story, but yeah, last, last month, you know, we, we merged or were acquisitioned by Rome. Um, part of the Associa family, and we're super excited to be here. Um, it's been quite a quite a journey, and and I'm just glad everything worked out. It's just a perfect scenario. Ten years, baby. Ten years to the day, from the day of buying fifty percent of the Realty Medics until selling the Realty Medics to Associa for is exactly July first, twenty thirteen to July first, twenty twenty three. Crazy so, ten yeah, years to wild. the day. It's wild. It's it's a scripted. Couldn't, couldn't script it better. Yeah. So, you know, what's like, what's unique for me here mm -hmm. is the fact that I've known you for a good chunk of that duration. Nine plus years. And been able to see the, the path as it's kind of come along. Mm -hmm. My experience is that in reverse, everything looks like it was like planned out, organized. And I mean, <laughs> this is, this is an awesome situation. I'm really happy for you. It looks like every move was kind of laid out obviously it doesn't really work like that you know you only yeah. know the next move that's in front of you um but when you look back man like is this is this more or less this was the plan is like getting to where we're at right now yeah it was i looking back yes it, it seemed like the perfect scripted plan um to take it from 200 doors to 1650 and being employee three to employee 62 i mean all of those things all went hand in hand and looking back on how, how the decisions were made and how the right team was put into place, the right methodology, the right tech, the right, the right, um, right relationships, including yourself and a lot of other people. Everything looking back was very calculated and very lucky. I think you have to be lucky. 100%. You got to meet the right people at the right time and when you need them. And um, it, it, it just really did work out. I mean, you look and I just can't. There's definitely some stumbles along the way. And those were, you know, those are, that's the ex exciting things about or when you go to stumble is how can you fix it? And, you know, being a mechanic at heart, that was fun mm -hmm. just to how to orchestrate this with, with all of the people that I've known and all the teams and stuff together. It's just been a, it's been a fun, fun run. And it's not over yet. It's still in it. Still in it. Still heavily involved. 
Yeah. That's probably one of the dis- distinctives that's worth highlighting mm-hmm. right out of the gate. Right. There are fundamentally different types of buyers, different types of there acquirers. There is. Rome is known for having more of a cash flow orientation. Right. Philosophically, generally speaking, folks that value cash flow mm-hmm. tend to make fewer changes to the business because they're wanting the stable business to continue to produce the cash flow. Right. When you were you had discussions with a number of different types of buyers, right? You got yeah. you got exposed to the full panoply. How did you think about finding the right match and the right partner, knowing that it was it wasn't just the size of the check, right? Well, n- number one was um, number one was taking care of the staff, the people that have been here for nine or ten years and who have really worked hard to grow alongside me. You know, I couldn't sit there at the end of the day and say, you probably have a job. And by the way, I just got paid a lot of money. Um, you know, I, I, I couldn't, I can't, couldn't do that. And, and I hadn't found a partner who was willing to do that and also pay at least a little something. Um, so, you know, those other partnerships, you know, that they're, they're good for certain models. It just wasn't mine. I thought ours didn't need a whole lot of fixing. Didn't need a whole lot of extra support. I thought we ran a really good ship and still do. Um, and at, and so I, I wasn't looking for someone to come pick us apart mm-hmm. either. I didn't, I mean, maybe it's just being a little conceited or um, I, I really like how we operate and I think we operate differently than most people and, and we were profitable doing it. So I didn't really want to give up and have someone, you know, pick off the good parts, take our contracts mm-hmm. and then see what's left. I, I think there's still a lot of what we have built that is unique that can, can help other people, mm-hmm. not just to hit pause or, or power down and have all of the technology and processes that we wrote that was unique to us just go away. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I mean, that's the second part of it, but I, I could power down if, if I knew that everyone was gonna be okay. And, and when this opportunity came, it was a no-brainer. I mean, you know, Charles Riska and Kit Garen, you know, they're, they're great guys. It was immediate connection. It was just, a, you know, you, you, again, you couldn't script it any better. Just mm. to meet them in the right moment. Mm. Ari had an, a different LOI on the table, and then things like this happened. Mm-hmm. And it went really fast, and it was, it was, it was clean. And there was no, oh, I should have done this or should have done that. There, Every, every box was checked, mm. every single one. It felt like it was really fast at the end it because was. it's not like the idea of selling was new to you. You would talk to a number of parties for really. Um, yeah. Like talked to only two, but aware and talk to. Yeah. And, and inquire with a lot of people who have sold or people who have been in talks. I've always been in the talks, but usually there, I didn't get past like the second checkbox of. What are you gonna do? You, know, you want us on? You're gonna make us go onto your platform. All those things. I I just never listened past that. Mm-hmm. So once you kept on checking the boxes, it was okay. Let's rewind the tape a bit. When you think yeah. about the discrete discrete eras or epochs of the business, what were like the inflection points? You came in ten years ago. What were the meaningful inflection points in you building this thing and getting to this point? Well, there's probably a lot of them if we go step by step, but, you know, walking in to a business that I didn't know much about, you know, I kind of blindly left corporate life and jumped into property management just because I thought it was an opportunity that, that, you know, probably could be fixed in some way. 
And I thought there was also reoccurring revenue, which I liked. And there was no expansion limits of retail or something like that. So going in and then understanding the books, the accounting side, that was, that was the first heavy lift is to be triple tied out in that folio and uh, actually understand your numbers. Um, looking back at that, that was, I tried to make heads or tails, like what is, how are we going to make money? What, you know, but, but looking at the books and, and not having good numbers, you can't make good decisions. So it, it took a long time of fixing that. And then at the same time, like looking at the process of property management and the different roles and trying to catch, you know, low hanging fruit. Like, you know, we used to, as long as an, in, as long as a vendor submitted an invoice, we'd pay it. Now, have we paid that before? Well, I don't know. You know, it was simple things like that. Like, no, we got to tell our vendors when we pay and we already have an open bucket for it. And then, okay, this invoice needs to be paid. Not I submit an invoice, I get paid simple things like that. But we were going back and auditing it. We found later on, we found, oh man, look at these vendors. They're simple stuff. And then, and then looking at, you know, um, just the different, just different processes, you know, what's efficient. Are we, how are we keeping track of stuff? How can I, how can one person leave and then another person pick up, mm -hmm. you know, what's, what's really important and, and what's the best way of doing this? Again, I haven't done property management for, so back in 2013, who, who, we, who has done property management, done it well. And so it became like a, a thesis project, a research project a mm -hmm. lot mm -hmm. early on mm -hmm. of like, What's the best way to structure? What's the best way of um, gathering information? What's the best way of communicating? What's the best way of keeping organized? What's the best software? And there was, there was a lot of good shops out there. I, I remember specifically listening, talking to Brian Birdie, and he was open book sharing information on processes. Very generous. Like, very generous, was the first one who kind of like opened up. Um, one of the first persons I met in NARPM, ironically as well, but, um, and, you know, he started sharing. I was like, oh, man. So then I learned how to gather that information and ask the right questions and start building. So didn't, didn't build off one person's. I built off of probably 100 different people mm -hmm. and what I thought was the right move. And I was just using logic throughout the way. So And so this is probably 14, 15, 16 timeframe. And as we're doing it, we implemented you know, that's when I met you right at 14 was taking in lead simple. And we first mastered our sales process because I had all of our, I was taking all the lead flow and I had outlook, you know, just emails coming in. I was trying to keep track of that. I was like, this is dumb. And then immediately after that, I hired the BDM, you know, employee number five. Mm. So that, so as long as we answer the phone, <laughs> you know, back then it was way different than now. But answering the phone, I, I know everyone says this now, but that was a big deal for mm -hmm. us. Just answer. I think and it still is, bro. It still is. But you're, you're, you're right. A lot of people are not, but, you know, but they're, they're catching on, though. Mm -hmm. It's not a secret anymore. Back then, it's like legit just had to answer and respond and have some kind of package to offer them. What did they want to hear? What the, what's the customer's voice? So, so just to backtrack a little bit, yeah, we highly focused on that. So we were growing and partnering with people with realtors that were um, selling foreclosures. So we weren't just going out and finding mom and pops. We were partnering with people selling good, you know, houses that need to be fixed. And then we had a, a maintenance company to fix those houses. 
Then we created an inspection company to inspect those houses. So now we can do a pre-buyer inspection of a house, give an estimate because the inspector is the head of property management or maintenance. And then we were able to sell the house, buy the house and um, manage it long-term. So that's kind of where we kind of double dip early on Mm -hmm. is we really focused on those. And then, and then as we're going through that, we, we, we're building processes. And, um, what I realized is I was the computer, you know, early on is understanding I was meeting with everybody, but I was asking all the questions and then I was making them, forcing them to give me statuses. And I was like, this is not going to work either as we get bigger. So probably six, five, 600 ish at that time. And that's when we introduced Podio and Mm -hmm. we had to build it. Um, and then that's really when things started to kind of take off and we were able to use a different level of staff, um, meaning entry level. What year was that that you started using Podio? 2016, June of 2016. So it was pretty novel at that point. Yes. Workflow automation as a category really didn't was not exist a category at all. It was just, it was a strictly a need that we had to have something to keep us organized and it's customizable because no one knew how, the best processes because I had just done a three year research project on what I thought was the best process. And Whenever a best process is done, it's continual improvement. You know, mm-hmm. we still live by that today. But um, so yeah, June of 2016, I finally decided, and and it ironically, it was my intern who brought this to me, and even more ironically, is she's our number two in in Courtney. So, I love it. That's awesome. That was seven years ago. So, you know, someone who just came in straight out of school and said, "Hey, look at this," and I said, "Nah." Oh, that's not the right one. Then I show me that again. I was like, wait, what can we do? And then we, you know, we, I'm like, this will work. This can talk this. I just, so then I, anyways, had to build it and, and work with her and, and, you know, but, um, so software happened, we had to get organized. We had to start reporting our numbers. You know, what is good? What's bad? What's overdue? What's not overdue? And we, that's that those numbers allowed me to self-manage. All I had to do is point at a screen and say, that's red, go fix it, please. Mm. And my expectations, the company's expectations were very clear in that um, there was no, there were expectations were set and you had to hit those numbers. If you couldn't hit those numbers, we had to talk about it. And not because it was a performance standard. It was because there must be something I missed in the understanding of that process. Mm. Something more is more complex. Something is taking longer. Mm -hmm. So we got to look at this and trim the fat back off. So, so as we did that, it was a very collaborative build out. Um, and at the same time, we're still growing at a, at a really good rate because still doing the foreclosures. We're still doing a lot of, um, just rehabbed homes. And, um, and then this tr- started to transition into new construction when the rehab became too expensive or you could buy a new house cheaper per square foot than you can rehab it. Then we sw- switched our models, started working with builders. And, you know, the, the transition continued, I guess. And we kept on learning, um, you know, in this time frame, we also learned that we needed a maintenance company that allowed us to um, kind of have a, t- that was separate from the property management company. So we could either have our own technicians or just have really clean automation of accounting and have a vendor portals and have all, we want transparent. We didn't want to give the same 
um, of giving an invoice or a work order to a, a vendor and it goes to a dark hole. We had to control the process if you're, because that's a backbone is maintenance, of course, mm-hmm. in property management and giving out a work order and hoping you're going to get it back and hoping it gets done is, is something you can't just hope for. It's, it's part of the business. So what we did is we had our own, we built a uh, pl- solution on Salesforce that allowed us to give that transparency so that we give a, a work order to a vendor. We see them enter the date when they're going to go. We see the date that they're going to close. And we see that they upload pictures before and after and all the accounting related accounting is done. So that was a big step for us because you could never get ahead of in accounting or I'm sorry, accounting and work orders. We can never get ahead of that. Mm-hmm. So that was launched shortly after Podio 2017. And then then yeah we started growing and then um in 2019 2018 2019 is when we realized we needed a a big step up in marketing and that's when you know we hired pam kosanke from she's an ex-renters warehouse marketing head um she really came in and really helped us polish up what we wanted to do um and then right around that time is also i think jeremy pound you know and off your podcast Mm -hmm. bringing jeremy into the you know, trying to be his first property management client and say, hey, this is what I want to do. I need a playbook, better playbook from what us. Anyways, it seems like it's a long story, but we're almost there. Um, well, so, I mean, we're here for the yeah, story, right? We're here for the story. Did you, so, oh, what about radio? Remind me, yeah. I remember talking to you and having a conversation yes. about you wanting to get in radio, yes. making an intro to Yoni. Is that the name that I'm recalling? Um. <laughs> that's the name that comes to mind. I don't know yeah, if it's accurate yeah, or not. You're, you're close. It's, 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 um, it's, it, it evolved yes. for you. You worked with a couple push, of different Push people. button productions. So when did, what year did you start doing radio? That was re- 2018. That was really novel at the time. 2017, 2018. I was reasoning based on the fact that I had seen Renner's Warehouse do it. Mm-hmm. I hadn't seen anybody else do it. You took that analog and did some experimentation, which is like beyond dabbling. You really put some... Some yeah. horsepower behind it. So that started before you started working with Pam. But once you come in, once Pam yes. comes on, then it kind of morphs and scales a bit differently. Yeah, that was a year before Pam. So we wanted to, yeah, we wanted to make a name. We had to grow. And at that time, um, radio seemed, no one else was doing it. Uh, Renters Warehouse had the case study and that's how they grew. So Brett and Hayden and learning and me asking you, hey, Jordan, who's done radio? You're like, just Brenton. <laughs> and then, so but at I, scale. At scale. So I, I look really closely at that and, and see which stations, all the different things that he did. Um, and I said, well, one person case studied it. Let's do it. So we went in full, full scale. And um, that means that you, are, you, you have a message. And you know how to measure the response rates. You know how to nurture also, you know. So people on radio don't call that, you know, 10 or 3% of the pyramid, you know, call immediately. Mm-hmm. And then, then everything else you got to nurture. So we had to make sure we were ready for that. If we're going to spend twenty to $30,000 a month in radio. And also, I mean, that was crazy amount of spend for what our revenue was at that time. Um, so we had to set up a lot of things and these are just kind of grassroots figuring it out. We didn't have a marketing expert. I just used my, my best judgment 
and worked with my internal team. And, um, you know, we piece, piecemealed this together and, and, you know, you introduced me where to get it recorded. They gave me an agent and I knew that was the move to have them do all the buys because that's mm -hmm. again, how renters warehouse did it. So, you know, getting lead simple, all, I think that's also why Jeremy came into play with, mm -hmm. um, and we, he helped get in that playbook, all the oppositions, and we had more than one person answer the phone. We were, we were fully ready and then we launched and, you know, it was crickets for a, for a couple of days and a couple, maybe a week. And then we get a lead and we're like, oh, and then we started to get another one, but it was not great. It, you know, we're paying like a thousand dollars a lead at this point. Um, but you know, but what I was told by, by the, the teams who were advising at the time is like, this is a 90 day commitment. You have to have a strong stomach. You can't pull out early. You got to believe in your product and mm. you believe in your messaging. And, you know, I was in. So, um, so we, we waited and probably the second month is when the phone started to ring. And then we also started getting the lead flow and we, things, things started happening and we were only on the radio for about six months a year. What we thought was the, the ideal time, which was April through September. Um, we really had no basis for that though um we just that was a gut and come to find out later long later in the career it was maybe not exactly right but it's all right um but so yeah radio radio helped um it it helped also well it gave us a big base it, we we grew uh you know a few few hundred doors that year um so the return you know it's hard to attribute every door to sure. radio you can't sure. do it and you know how what do you say how do you track it you can't give codes i mean just go to therealtsmedics.com you know and ask for this I mean, no one does that so mm. you just got to watch your overall you know this is my normal lead flow and then look back on it and say okay i can see the bump i can see the bump i can see the doors i can th see things happening because what we were finding out is you know it's a brother of wh whoever is who's heard it on the radio you know, we started getting leads from California because someone locally, you know, heard it on the radio and then they called their, their uncle in California and says, Hey, switch to the realty medics because, you know, I heard him on the radio and the owners in California were mm -hmm. like, how is, how, why are they putting Rick Stacy in the morning on one Oh five nine, you know, in California, but come to find out we, we, you know, that's, it was starting to work. Um, we also did a lot of multi-level marketing, um, and, um, Tell me about that multi-level marketing. What are you re referring to there? Well, um, well, marketing on 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 many different levels with all the same messaging. But so, I met this guy down here in Orlando, and he owned a orange juice business called Homemakers Orange Juice. His name is Brandon, and he goes, "Have you ever heard of programmatic marketing?" And I said, "What's that? No idea." And he goes, "Well, I can I can." tell you who bought a can of Tropicana orange juice from a Walmart in Tulsa, Arizona or Tulsa, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, uh, I can get their info. And I was like, what? He's like, watch. And then, and then he had all this data already set up because his friend at data drive marketing is at the company we used at the time. Um, they had all of these endpoints and information in setting up programmatic marketing, which means they're taking credit card transactions, they're um, looking at rewards cards, they're, they're creating a, a profile of a customer 
And then they're trying to overlay it over the actual customer. We're trying to figure out the person's email address is mm -hmm. pretty much what's going on here. But in any case, we still know that a can of Tropicana orange juice was, was sold in Tulsa, Oklahoma at a Walmart. So I was like, well, that's amazing. Let me talk to this guy. And so we did, and we started setting up programmatic marketing campaigns to, you know, the, what I always call the golden, the golden nugget of a, I, I've never been able to find where the, um, self-managing landlord or a person who owns a rental house, where, what, what class of society, what group are they in? And it's never been, you can't, it's, it's so dis, it can be anybody. It really can be, you can get it down to kind of, um, close on a demographic, but you can't get really that close. You can't go to a conference or spend all your, all your money on this mm -hmm. radio. Yeah. Radio is going to hit it. You know, 30, 30, 30, some percent are rental homes. Now are they in your market or not? Well, you know, in our portfolio, only 30% live in Florida. So we knew we were going to miss something, but we did programmatic as well, along with radio. So we had these two things set up and then they were, they were generating some leads. They really were, um, programmatic. We didn't ever get it like super, super dialed in. So we were, you know, a one hit one shot kill. Um, but it was, it was worth, and we learned, we learned it was just a part of the growing pain. Um, and so then when Pam came in and she was part of the radio, she also brought in, you know, some high power um, agencies and we started really working with a different level of radio mm -hmm. in our local market. And so that was the next year. So um, I remember talking to Pam, which, you know, she is a huge influence in the business, but I remember the first time just trying to get on her, just to get her to call me back. And she's like, oh yeah, you do property management. Okay. And me about it and I, was, you know, I said whatever and then she's I, I can tell she's about to hang up I was like wait I do radio and I had no metrics and I know what my customer acquisition cost you know I started this <laughs> Trying to diary of the mouth like no no I, I do programmatic I know how to follow up I, I know these different stations I know this and know that and you know this is my spend and she's like what I was like yeah and we have our own software we're doing all these things and she and she goes oh okay and then you know she's like oh cool and then I somehow convinced her once she realized you're a serious a, person yeah and there might be a little bit of meat behind this and and i really really wanted her help again another person on your podcast not throwing too many uh, uh feathers in your cap but yeah you can have a lot um i'm glad that, that <laughs> so lucrative so so yeah she came on as our fractional cmo and helped us out a lot in the growth cycle here and really kind of helped us nail down who we are and what's the message we want to show and be consistent about it. All right, let's park on that. Yep. How did that feel for you? Some people, when they go into the, into the messaging, positioning conversation, feel like this is a perfunctory, low-key waste mm -hmm. of time because I really just want the leads. How did you relate to like slowing down and having that messaging conversation before getting into more lead flow stuff? We were able to really define what our guarantees are, what our unique differences which are why why are why should someone choose us and also we got to give the client or the potential lead no reason to say no we wanted to say no if anything they weren't a good fit for us but we wanted to make sure that every lead that came through the door that we set everything up so that they had to say yes the I mean, offer per se the offer was great we're a great company with great reviews we have great staff great software everything is great 
pricing's acceptable. We might weren't the cheapest, but that was that wasn't the reason to kick us out yet. Mm-hmm. We give us a chance, and we never answered, which Jeremy taught us, never answer the price question until you figure out who they are and what was important to them, and then cater it to them, and then you drop the price at the end. So we really did follow. I mean, you know, it's a sales book of we just followed it. I mean, um, I've heard I have some really good friends in sales, and they're like, "How'd you do it?" You know, I ask them all the time. I'm really good friends. Um, and they said, we just followed the playbook. We didn't, we just never went left. We never went right. We just did exactly the same thing over and over and over again. And it worked. And so working again, Jason, the BDM who's been in the whole time, he just followed the script mm. over and over and over again. And we get so dialed, you almost can't screw it up. Dialed up and here are the guarantees. Here's this, here's that. And are you ready to sign? ask for that offer so so what they did was they really just refined us they got us to that who are we we didn't take on everybody we already learned and bombed that you know taking on everybody taking on multifamily and these things that were not good multifamilies but there was doors right and there's money behind doors and it's not always true so um yeah they really helped us dial in and really helped us just be be better they just leveled us up because they had the experience and they taught us well. Hmm. So, um, so radio continued, programmatic started. We started doing commercials. O- OTT is over the top, doing um, dialed in commercials over the air. So, you know, the way commercials work, um, you know, you, we can be watching, we can be neighbors and we can be watching the same show, but different commercials can be delivered on, through the streaming platform based upon the users, likes, wants, and demographics. So understanding that and creating a message, you know, we tried that. Um, you know, we, we didn't finish that project, but again, we got some, we learned from it enough to say, let's try something else. Mm-hmm. And that was, that, those were the ideas that like Pam would bring to us and say, hey, what about this? What about, you know, direct mail? Everyone's heard direct mail. We're restarting a whole direct mail now. But back then we did get some more leads out of that. Um, by just having consistent drip to the same people. So what did, what did this add up to in aggregate? Let's say in 2022, for example, how many units did you guys add? Ballpark. Uh, 340. On a, on a base, well, how many units do you manage right now? 1650. Got it. Okay. So this is some pretty significant acceleration as you were going through these exercises. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're in the two hundreds at that range, but. What's interesting to me yeah. about you is that you have this appetite mm-hmm. on the upside that's obvious. Somebody talking to you for five minutes will just get really clear that you have this a heavy ops orientation. But you also had the appetite for the sales and marketing side. Mm-hmm. You didn't put that at arm's length distance. Mm-hmm. You used the credit card reference earlier. That's the way yeah. a lot of people relate to it. Like, hey, all oh, that's cool, but I really just want the leads. I don't actually want to like learn about this. Right. You embraced both sides of this. As you're doing all this marketing stuff, what's happening on ops? Did, does it feel like that? Is it the typical experience of things kind of keep breaking as you're scaling? What, what broke as you scaled, if anything? Um, let me think. I, you know, ops was, ops was number one. So if ops was not number one, then marketing doesn't, we turn off marketing. So and and the the fuel to the fire of how much time we're going to be on radio or how much time is how uh, proficient ops is 
So um, ops is always number one because you know the easiest client, the cheapest client is the one to keep, not not the new one to to buy. And we always had to focus on our churn rates and having a stable, operating, well-oiled machine business was more important than marketing. But we still are in business to grow our companies, and mm -hmm. you can't grow just by having great ops. Mm -hmm. um, you might not shrink as fast, but you still can't grow. So. There was definitely times when we pulled back on marketing um, because ops was a little shaky. You know, we're going through a growth phase, we're doing this. But we usually always, right about that time, we also always found a solution, um, whether it's EOS, where, whether it's Podio, whether it's, um, you know, just better, better people to join the team. Mm -hmm. there, there, there was some, or, or we fired, we fired 110 owners, no, 110 doors, 84 owners um overnight you know and that was a huge boost to the team the what, what led up to that what was the calculus that you did in advance <laughs> um we just we just rated our owners because i i kept on hearing names if i hear a person's name it has to be bad because i'm trying to stay my best uh, out of the day-to-day -day ops but whenever i i kept on hearing certain owners names and how we we're compromising for them or how mean they were yelling you know screaming or just demoralizing i was like this is crazy and then i was like well i asked the team to rate them one to four and the fours were you know we we had a criteria for each one um one is they trusted us we liked them great and two is like you know they trust us they asked a few questions but overall they're still an okay person three is like they don't trust us but they're kind of nice. They ask a lot of questions, but not quite ready to fire. And then the fourth is like mean and doesn't trust us, but and gives us a hard time. So they did that analysis. And then we also looked at, when I got that, I, I started looking at the doors and if they're, how can I correlate the two together, mm -hmm. not just an owner. And it came down to price. A lot of it also was anything below it. I think at the time was, was 1100 bucks. We can't, we just cut it out. Um, so unless they had it, unless they were an, a one or two owner and, you know, they had part of their portfolio below a thousand, we didn't, we didn't cut them, but anyone else, we, that's how we came up with that, that number. And I mean, the 80, 20 rule is like the staff had 80% more time and by cutting, by cutting that many doors, we just did it ripped off the bandaid and we're probably around a thousand or 1200. So it was the 10% cut. That's significant. It was. I mean, that's enough door. That's basically a portfolio for yeah. a smaller operator. Yep. And we just said 30 day notice. Thank you. Um, but just, you know, almost, almost got hugs from the property managers and stuff that I mean, literally did. I mean, oh man, that, they were giving me such a hard time, whatever. And we were able to level up. But those are the level ups that have happened throughout that just, just, you know, again, can you script or not? I'm not sure. But th those are some important milestones, though, to look at. Um, so let's talk about some of the people yeah. management milestones. Okay. In ops, you have the systems, the processes, mm -hmm. you have the people, the culture. What is the evolution of the people of you as a manager and your management philosophy look like over time? Well, coming in here, I never thought I was going to be a people manager. So when I had two two reports, I I expect I didn't expect it to go up that much. Um, but 
you know, as long as a person is open-minded and <clears throat> knows how to work hard, they don't have to know the subject matter. I think everything's trainable. Um, and then empowering people to just do a good job, care, you know, and I, I don't think it's quite as easy said as it is done, but the people that have been with us for a long time, or even the, some of the people that have left on great terms is, you know, they were, we all, we developed them together. You know, there, we went through things. What do you think? You know, um, whenever questions would come to me, um, you know, the, the, it was like going and seeing the lawyer or the judge, you know, they would come in, they would know to have evidence. They would know to have their best solution and then they would pitch it. And then I would say, good job. So it, it was, it was that level of like mm. empowerment mm. of people who might not have ever done it before, but either did I. So that's how I figured it out. So I just wanted them to say, what do you think, Ben? What should we do? I don't, I don't, I didn't ever want that question. I want to know mm. what you are going to mm. do. Mm. And why do you think that? Mm. So why, why, why is always as a corporate trainer and stuff, I always ask, do you understand the problem in front of you? And how are you going to solve it? So I think that gives a lot of enjoyment to people too, and not being micromanaged and just trust, like do a good job. Um, and you know, we'll all get high fives and we'll, we'll celebrate together. So that's kind of the methodology we played. And, um, I think it, I think it worked well, it worked really well, especially with the younger crowd, younger team. Cause that's who we were hiring because that's what we were, you know, we wanted to have fresh thoughts and coming out of college, ready to learn and mm -hmm. willing to do what it takes. I'm not saying the older crowd doesn't, but I didn't, I didn't want to learn how, what someone else learned. I, I at that time I wanted to, to develop it just fresh. And that's why we went with no experience and, and, um, college interns and those kind of things. What does your leadership team look like right now? Um, there's six of us. Um, the, the founder, the broker, Tommy, he's on there. And then we have um, Jason in sales, Courtney's our integrator, and Lisa's head of leasing and onboard, onboarding experience. And we have Ken, who's head of property management and maintenance. All right, so Courtney's the integrator. That's yeah. an homage to EOS. How long have you been running on EOS for? It's been three and a half years. That's enough time to know, to have some pretty strong opinions. What mm -hmm. are your reflections on being all in for three years? Um, one of the most important things we've ever done. So it, it, it allowed us to become, it, it was like us moving out of our house, you know, it'd be going to college. And we, this is, this is the time when we were able to set our own goals, be very organized and very detailed on what we had to do. And it wasn't just, um, my, my show. Um, I, I say that in, in, the you know, I, I didn't want to, what does Ben think? I, I wanted it to be a collaborative effort. And by creating the leadership team and creating these specific company rocks, what I thought I had created was nowhere near what it should have been in having rocks and everyone having goal, um, you know, all the way through the organization, everyone beating to the same drum. Um, once there's a, a certain amount of levels, you, they can't hear a voice. So they can't, you know, they, they're, the other leaders need to lead their teams and they have to be clear on it. We all have to be together. So it was, it was just the structure we needed to really level up and really start making big differences in, in many different areas. 
And so. did it feel like that the team really embraced it, or at first yeah. did it feel like you were having to really push to to get buy-in? What did the buy-in look like? It was near immediate. I mean, we wow. Pam was our implementer. She was an EOS mm-hmm. implementer, so she already knew our organization very well at coming off the marketing play. And you know, we she set it up. She she'd already done it before. She was you know, it, and we had a really good coach. But the buy-in because it was set up well, was almost immediate. I mean, it was immediate. I mean, they voted, other than selecting who's gonna be on leadership team, they voted their own roles, they bought in, um, and and they, they, like Courtney got voted to be the number two by her peers. And so things like that are just really cool to watch. Yeah. Um, and, and then the buy-in, this helped them. It's just like Podio. I never push Podio, but people are like, yeah, I, I want to fix it. I want to do this or, and you know, you can't take every request, but it made their life better. It made them more efficient and they can provide, you know, a, a next level of service to the client and it didn't stress them out. <laughs> you know, it, it bought themselves in same with, you know, the new call center that we have set up now. It's, it's another thing that's just organically happening. Because, you know, and, and when you have these, these new systems that come in, that's how it has to work. You can't force it. If you force it, people, you really, really have to believe in it. But if you're going to try to force anything, but if you have buy-in, it's organic. It goes mm. viral mm. and your job is so much easier and, and, and better. So, but sometimes it takes explaining why are we doing this and again i'm going back to the why's as long as everyone's on the same team and understands the full reasons why this is a better deal it's a lot easier to get on board you know not knowing is is this it's it's poison in some ways Mm. people are going to be you know just hold back they're not gonna i don't know i'm gonna wait and see and things like that right see if he gets tired of it is he really gonna be still talking about this six months from now right so so yeah we but not having to do that letting it go and people get excited and then they they're just enjoy their job more i mean our longevity our retention rates of this of the team is is really long you know we're i'm not even sure where it goes because most of the people are the still the original seat holders Mm. um throughout the company even remotely so that's really important to me i'm glad that they're still here and that they're still enjoying it and along the way there might be some refreshes that comes along the way Mm -hmm. but um anyways that's where we're at today let's you said call center let's hone in on that i don't hear a lot of folks talking about building a call center call call when i hear call center I think there's a couple of vendors that do this in mass for after hours calls, et cetera. Mm-hmm. What was the genesis of this thought and how has it developed over time? So we're, we're still pretty new in this. Um, you know, somebody else, Andy Moore, who's in our, in our profit coach group has something similar. He also runs a short term, gave me the, I, the original idea. And then, but what, what it is, is, you know, when, when a person has to answer the phone, and then they get yelled at for whatever reason, you know, my, my air conditioning is not working right or this or that, the other thing, there's an emotional toll that happened. Mm. And they might've been in the middle of renewing a lease or doing a delinquency or doing something else, but now they have answered the phone 
they're emotionally tied to this situation that's happening. And then now they have to stop, have empathy, say, I'll get back to you, solve their problem. But, but to solve their problem, they're probably going to have to stop and go research. Why did the air conditioning go out? Is there a work order? Where's the vendor? All these things. And that's, and maybe this tenant is called two or three more times in this 30 minutes and they're still, ah, you know, yelling, which they're hot. It's August, it's Florida, but there's an emotional toll that happens. And, and then they have to, they have to take the call. They have to solve the call. And then they have to figure out whatever the heck they were working on before the call happened. And from an efficiency standpoint, that doesn't make any sense. Why, why we should have a person just doing this who's uninterrupted. You're going to, if you're uninterrupted, you're going to process whatever 20 renewals in a day. But if you have a lot of interruptions and phone calls and different things happen, you're only going to do like two. And what did you really solve? But so at least the, the idea of the call center is to kind of buffer the team mm. so they can take in and they're going to get yelled at, but they also don't have to solve the problem. They're going to take in the call. They're going to look in the system and say, and hopefully the system is updated because now these, the other team has more time for that work order and the vendor and things. So it's all in the system so that the person can look at it and say, oh yeah, we have this scheduled for tomorrow. Your air conditioning is going to be fixed. You know, is there anything else I can help you with? So they have more resources to make sure all the data is right. So by having that information um, and also from a showing standpoint, from owners calling, you know, who, who wants to call up your property manager and they're either on the phone, they're in a meeting or something goes to voicemail. You know, when was the last time you called your cell phone company? You have a question because your phone doesn't work and you get a voicemail, you know, or call up your bank and get a voicemail. Where does this happen in, in major industry today? It doesn't. You call in. It doesn't really matter that I'm talking to Jordan. You know, but w my problem is this. How are you going to solve it for me? So as I started looking around for something closer to property management, I couldn't find one. <laughs> Why? Why are we holding a jack of all trades, a, a, a position that's so hard to train and to be good at everything? Is a really, it's a unicorn. And if you are a unicorn, you're going to be paid a lot of money and you've been in it for a long time. But I'm going to guess there's one or two parts of the job you either hate or you're not good at. Late rent. You're too nice of a person. You don't want to yell at the lady to pay her rent. You're like, oh, give me next week or something like that, for example. So I think by, by taking the call center and taking, it's not just calls. It's also chat. It's, you know, it's showings. It's all leads. It's, it's, it's a little of everything. And eventually it's going to be emails as well but it's, it's a customer service representative to handle all non-process oriented communications. For? Property management. Well, for owner, owners and tenants. Every, and leads, applicants, everybody. Full coverage. Yeah. Anything that's not initiated. So renewal, we initiate the renewal. A work order, we initiate the work order. A late rent, hey, Mr. Owner, you're not gonna get paid. We initiate that. Um, but anything else is, is non-scheduled. Or it's a lead. Mm. So we just need to take care of that because if we don't, you're going to get a bad name or people are just going to snowball through it because, and then that gives the other people way more time to do their job correctly without interruption. And they can be a specialist in one or two areas 
I'm a renewal person, I'm this person, I'm work orders, I do unit turns, I do this, leasing, onboarding. There's all different departments, but you're really only doing, well, this is my concept at least. You're doing one thing, you're doing it super well. And you might work as a team to renewal people or whatever the size of your company is, but I think it can be done much more efficiently. Um, so that's what we're kind of test marketing, I guess, in a way. But but as we do it, people are like, again, it's one of those viral things where it's like, yeah, well, this is crazy the way we used to do it. So people are like, yeah, the call center, man, it's helping us out so much. And I, you know, it's already starting to happen without really making all the specialists and stuff like that. So once those ideas happen, you gotta, you gotta, I, at least I want to continue those ideas through to see, make sure it's set up right. It's refreshing the business. What, what's the staffing model for that, by the way? Six people. Co-located, correct? Um, on the same place? No. All over the place. Yeah, all remote, um, Nicaragua and Philippines. And yeah, I think that's it. And how do you maintain QA and oversight over those conversations? Given that they're client-facing, mm -hmm. it's high stakes, how do you QA it? Um, well, the, the main way is, is um, agent and customer sentiment. We, we built it on Amazon Connect, and it can use a lot of AI in the conversations that happen. And if the customer is that upset at the end of the call, those are the calls we're going to review. and ensure that it was handled appropriately to use as a training device. Um, and then we also have transcripts and um, issues and resolutions for every single call that is done by AI as well. So we can quickly see and, and start to categorize things. And then we, can, we, can, we have data basically is what I'm trying to say on how we QA it. We, don't, we, we keep a very close eye. We have you know, a manager over that that team um and you know um the goal is to answer every call and and eventually never transfer a call um and so they're asking questions you know live hold please <laughs> you know and calling a specialist but now they have some knowledge we're we're developing a, a knowledge database as well so to help in future trainings and things like that but you don't have to teach like everything you just got to teach them how to find information mm. it's like teaching someone how to google if you can google google our system you're gonna most likely you're gonna figure out the answer what's the status of my work order you know where do you live <laughs> well we already know that because it came in with your phone number so he said okay i know you live at this house i know oh wait here's the tickets you've already called twice today or you've already called you know that's all sitting on the screen so we we have a lot of insight and then we go into the work order app and we say okay yeah here's the rest of the information have a good day so we're the questions asked asked are some can be difficult i don't want to downplay it these guys are really working hard and coming up with some really good customer service and we're learning from them it's only been six months eight months of full scale launch since the beginning of the year so um but having a nice uh, knowledge base and things like that is it's, it's going to continue to evolve and the team is going to probably get a little bit bigger and we're going to have, you know, even better communications from it. One of the things that stands out to me when you're talking about these investments, because that's what they are, mm -hmm. technology, call center, those are material investments, is that you did this with a backdrop of maintaining profitability. Yes. I've seen multiple companies 
grind profits to zero and then quickly descend beyond that mm -hmm. in the pursuit of some kind of efficiency that should then be producing profits, but in many cases actually doesn't. It's a really fine dance mm -hmm. and balance. How did you think about maintaining profits while making these strategic investments? You know, understanding your numbers, it's, as I said early on, you had to know those numbers to make good decisions. Um, so, you know, with uh, Profit Coach and Danny Craig and that, you know, he really helped me understand the numbers and where I can, um, where I can be more profitable, increase my doors or add different services and things like that. So, um, you know, I never looked at it trying to increase revenue. I always controlled expenses because that's the only thing I could truly control. So I did that from the beginning and being very um, thoughtful for every dollar that was spent. And that can include me doing, changing out the toilet paper in our office to, you know, also being the CFO mm -hmm. and also being the IT guy and also fixing stuff around the office or, or, or doing the car maintenance and things like that. Um, I was very thoughtful in every single dollar that was spent. Um, so then that gave me a baseline. Why? What was motivating that? Some people would say, oh, Ben's just cheap. What was motivating that self-consciousness on the cost side? Um, I wanted to make sure that we stayed profitable and, again, controlled the expenses. Like if I, if I went out and fixed the car, I would have more money to spend on marketing. Mm -hmm. I would have more money to spend on Podio or a developer or do something I really wanted. Um, you know, time is, there is a time and cost around my time. But at the same time, there was other things I wanted to do more. And I knew I didn't have the ability or I needed to buy it. And that could be another person. Do I want to have, hire an IT person to run our IT in our office? Or do I want a person mm, to mm, be, mm. you know, run the call center? That didn't exist at that time, but have a better maintenance coordinator. Can I give this person a raise and I can, I can yeah, run the books? So um, coming from previous companies that controlling expenses was the number one thing that I wanted to do. And then coming back to, to, to Danny and, you know, when we were $170 a door in, in revenue, I knew that if I raised it 10 bucks, I had an extra, whatever Street's amount of money. Line. And I, then I can afford to do something with it. Mm -hmm. Now, is that a person or is that a, or is that a marketing play? It's a capability. I had capability to, to expand. So again, controlling those expenses with this the fine tooth comb and understanding mm. them, it really allowed us to do what we needed to do and never lose profitability because I wasn't, even though radio was calculated, it was a lot of money. Mm -hmm. It was, I meant it was a lot of money, but it was also calculated in that um, I knew what I had to get from a return, but I also know I just raised $10 out of my, my dollars per door, dollars per unit. So I knew I could afford it, even if it didn't work. So it allowed us to play with marketing in, in a sense that, you know, all the other numbers stay the same because, and I'm only playing with one variable. Here. Mm. So someone somewhere hearing this is going to conflate profits with distributions. And I hear you saying that your orientation was on retained earnings to redeploy the capital within the yes. business. Yeah. I, you know, being profitable was there, but again, controlling expenses, whatever was left at the end of the day was left. The goal was not to make 
a distribution at the end of the day. Not, not in those years. Those are growing years. But staying profitable just in case somebody comes along was always important. So, so yeah, profit, you know, I had a W-2 and that's what I should, you know, coming from a corporate world, I lived on my W-2, if not less than that. So I never went out, my, my personal expenses never went into distributions. Mm. I didn't need distributions to live. Um, so that was, it, it, I guess it was out of, it, it didn't matter, I, but I, do, I knew I had to control profitability and I wanted to be at a certain range and of course someday be as high as possible. But in those days, it was, it was a little bit different. But again, controlling expenses was a huge piece of, of the growth play. And uh, just getting all the people I needed. On the revenue side, what kind of shift did you see on your revenue per unit? When you first gained awareness and consciousness that this was something to juice, mm-hmm. you took it from what to what? How much movement did you see on that side? Oh, from beginning a profit coach until now, um, it's $93. $93 of movement. Yeah. 93 yeah. What was the starting point? 170. I'm at 263 wow. today. And I know I'm still low compared to most people, but I'm, I'm low and then calculated low in some ways because, again, I want to make sure I bring in the doors. So, and we're still highly, pro- we're, we're just as profitable as those other guys because we're controlling our expenses. So that, that's, that was the unspoken, no one's ever asked me that before, by the way. So good job. <laughs> That was, I mean, that was top of mind. You had that off the cuff, ready to, you yeah. know, your numbers at the end of the day. You've seen value in knowing your I numbers. Knew, I knew the numbers and yeah, you're, the way you formulated that question, yeah, that is exactly why. And it only caused a problem later on in the last two years when I'm still changing out mm-hmm. toilet paper in the, in the, you know, the company restroom that I was like, man, I really got to get some help because this is not worth my, exactly my time, but you know, and we could afford it. And I could start delegating off some of the stuff that I probably shouldn't be doing. I want to hear a little bit about some of the distractions, some of the temptations, mm-hmm. the sirens that came to sing to you along the way. What are some of the things that you said no to that looked tempting or interesting and could have taken you on a veering path? Mm-hmm. Focus is, is really key. I'm such a big believer in focus. Yeah. There's not many products or people Projects, projects, biz dev, multi-market, selling software. I mean, there's got to be some distractions. There was a lot of distractions, I guess. If you think about, you know, take Podio and do this or go to, or, um, you know, should we take on commercial? Should we take on short term or? Moving to Texas. Yeah. I mean, t- you know, let's go into northern Florida, you know, but it was always at the end of the day, it was really staying focused on I still believe there was a big market left, market share left in our central Florida market to to acquire. And by diluting that to move into any other market or to spend any more time on creating a maintenance company or selling software or doing something else was a risk to the overall objective. And the objective was just to be a really high power property management company. Like highly focused on that. We didn't, we didn't want to go left and right because I didn't, I didn't want to dilute that. We're, I felt we were pretty good at what we did, but there was a risk. There was no reason to take a risk and go to North Florida or, or start selling a product that I didn't know the answer to. Mm-hmm. And the products that, and the s- products and services that did come in and we did ex- um, use 
were, you know, were almost a no brainer. Like, man, I'm, I'm a logical guy. And then I'm like, that makes sense. There's a couple along the way that didn't work, but to, you know, because it's probably because we grew to a size that wasn't as shifty as it was in the beginning, mm-hmm. but it was really staying focused at the, of the, of the game plan early on. You know, we're, we're not a property management business that also is a high power sales company, for mm-hmm. example, or have maintenance technicians and sell to another. No, no, we tr- tried that for a quick minute with our maintenance business. We started servicing other property managers, but, at, but I realized quickly that we're providing them with one of the best services that property management offers. And so I was helping my competitors. I was like, for what? what what's really going to make the money at the end of the day? How is the, pe- how are the staff going to be paid? It's from property management. It's not from maintenance. It's not from selling software. It's not from anything else. Property management is the main engine and we got to feed it and, and not dilute it. Don't starve it. Just keep on feeding it and, and stay focused on it. What about brokerage? Brokerage was a um, brokerage was a key piece in selling homes, but but not to not you know my business partner was selling homes to grow our portfolio. He was and and that was thrown back into the to the to the pot. We're feeding the property management company now. If he went off and hired agents, we're going to be paying commissions out and pay, making the money's going to leave the house. We wanted to keep the money in the house. So t- Tom was really focused on making sure if someone does sell, we sell it, keep the money in the business or sell them another house and so we can manage it. So brokerage was, was a piece, but it, it wasn't an expandable piece outside of his realm because we didn't want to dilute the product again. Again, mm-hmm. we're a property management company. I don't care if we make X amount of dollars off any bunch of real estate agents. It was outside of our model and expertise. Neither one of us had run a company of that size or, you know, just even have agents. Mm-hmm. We didn't know how that's a, teaching sales is, as well, you know, it's much different ballgame and they're independent contractors. They're not drinking the same juice. They're, they're not loyal. They don't have to be as loyal. They don't have, they're out there making their own money on their own 1099. So that's a different model. Very different vibe, different yep. ethos, different energy. Yep. Same when we had technicians, you know, it was, it was tough. Blue collar is um there's nothing wrong with it but it's it's hard you know it's just the dedication and things are just different and it, it was that's why we went to the markup model early on is trying to keep technicians motivated and having to worry about their time cards and all of the inventory products and you're spending all this time on something you're not an expert in um you know so that's why we took this well, i can be an ex- expert in coordinating you know, when you go <laughs> and also how you invoice, I can control all of that. But so. So that's a fairly clean argument. The argument that instead of managing a fleet of technicians, I can mm-hmm. simply do markup. So I'm getting a fair bit of the markup yeah. with none of the hassle. The pushback obviously is around quality vendor right. management. Talk right. to me about that. What, what does that look like for you? I mean, vendor management is, is super I mean, it's so important. And again, coming from previous companies, that was a big part of what we did. So I had a, I knew that was um, super important. And it's, it's, you know, it's giving them feedback. It's bringing them on properly. 
and then it's also monitoring them. It's, it's, it's almost like your kids in a way, you know, and you, you, again, I didn't want to give them a work order and hope to get it back someday it is here's the technology. Here's what you're going to do. And you know, anything you need, we're happy to do. And we'll always pay you on Wednesdays, but in return, I need to make sure you follow our system and you'll always have work. If you, and then we had vendor scorecards and feedback and weekly meetings and things like that, that we talked to them and said, Hey, listen, this, you took a little too long. This was a little too high. You didn't, this is what we would like to see. So, um, we, we take it very seriously and it, it's part of the success. You can't just hire everybody. <laughs> you got to put time into them. What kind of a receptivity vendor scorecards? That's really interesting. What kind of receptivity do you find there? Um, every single work order is where they get a rating from price to service to quality. Um, we're, we're, we're sending a survey to the tenant afterwards, make sure everything's cool. Then we're rating them also back on theirs. Um, we have five components of that scorecard um, and it's on their vendor portal. So when they log in, they can see what their current rating is. And then we also rate them one to whatever number. And if you're our number one guy, you're going to get the majority of the work orders. So it's your ambition to do better. We didn't ever give one guy all of the business, Mm -hmm. of course, but it, but there was some thought behind it, of course. And, um, but you know, if you are a high power HVAC company in Florida and you had great pricing and you did good scheduling, you're going to get most of our business, but you, you you know, 90%. And as long as you do well, we're not going to have to dilute, you know, switch anything, dilute anything down. Um, so that's a constant thing. And the things that are t- still tough is, you know, I need a tr- well, if, trust for anyone though. I need a tree vendor, you know, I need a, I need a fence put back up, you know, I, I need a, I don't know, a stucco repair or something that's, w- what is the cost of that? It's, it, there's a lot of variation of that. So those are the times when we, Vendor management is not as key because we're not going to use that tree vendor every single week or every single work order, right? Um, but we still have to work with them and, and, and they have to understand what we expect for pricing. But it's, it's never ending. Just, just like managing, teaching, mm-hmm. being a leader, it's never ending. You can't just hit the brakes and take a vacation. Um, if you do, it, it, it will crash. <laughs> So as you're building this thing over a 10-year period, what are you thinking along the way is the end destination? It turned out to be this, the Mm -hmm. thing we're talking about. But along the way, what was in your mind's eye? What what were you thinking was going to happen? Was there going to be some big acquisition in the sky? It was just going to be profitable? Did you not know? You know, I I didn't know. Um, You know, I, I thought about it a lot. Um, but I, I didn't know what the end game was because I had never seen an acquisition of something that I was interested in. Um, I was interested in possibly, you know, letting the team take over someday. That was, that's, I think the probably I was leaning toward a little bit more is, you know, or replacing myself. I think I've even talked to you about that is finding another CEO, but you know, that's a really, again, a, a risky play. And it's to bet all the cards on somebody else on your business. And if, especially if you didn't develop them. So I wasn't quite there yet. I didn't want out that bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I never truly wanted out. I just wanted to know what, what's the, what direction to take it. So, um, so that's why the, you know, 
the Rome deal was such an easy call because it was what I was looking for, but I didn't know it existed. I think what's interesting is profitable companies have the greatest amount of optionality mm -hmm. in moves. Companies that are unprofitable, low profitability can still sell. That mm -hmm. happens all the time. People buy a dumpster fire of a portfolio and you know, you're getting a lower revenue multiple, but there's still money there. People there are buying the contracts. When you have profits, you have free cash flow. Mm -hmm. And that is optionality. That's a game you can keep playing. Of any of the options that you just listed, hire another CEO, uh, bring your employees up or exit. When you thought about the options that were before you, early on in the first conversations that I remember having with you, it, it was more in that kind of like um, COVID run up. I just remember some scattered one-off conversations with you. It didn't go anywhere, but there was like a two or three year window where M&A activity really heated mm -hmm. up. It got a lot of airtime. And I feel like in some ways we're almost kind of like coming down on the backside of that as things have settled. But there was a lot of craziness going on for a period of time. What were you thinking while, while when M&A activity was really loud? Was that, was it tempting to you? I mean, because you have this thing kicking off free cash flow, which which is great. It's really hard to pass up. Yeah. Um, well, again, they had to hit all the check boxes and I was interested. I wanted to know what our self-valuation was. You know, I didn't know. Um, I, you know, I've never done an acquisition. So um, not knowing what you're worth is, is just like, you know, taking your car down to CarMax and what's my used car worth, right? That's all I was really doing. And, um, and I only did that a few times to get me within a ball game. Benchmark benchmark yeah uh, so and then so that was that was that was an option but it wasn't it didn't feel right yet you know and 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 the ones that i was watching were far from other people selling and things were not a good fit for what i wanted to do i would rather you know uh, operate at a lower level and remove myself and then hopefully we can figure out something and keep the cash flow and keep keep the team and keep things in, in line. But I, I, I wouldn't, well, it takes time to develop everyone, to be able to offboard all the roles I had. And, um, so we, you know, it was, it was a journey, but it, there was never an offer or something that was like, man, that looks pretty good. I, 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 and fortunate enough, we had enough cash flow. We didn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. So it was like window shopping a little bit, but, it, um, yeah, I just never, the journey also wasn't done. I think if I add something back is, um, you know, I, I liked what we we're doing. I liked building out of all of the software and the owner dashboards and everything we had. Mm. I really wanted to get that to a certain place of, a t of not needing me to run it. And it, we, we, we've just recently, everything recently is accomplished for the most part. You know, I'm, I don't run it i don't do a lot of these extra th things or development projects and stuff like that we have people now that can take the vision and run with it which is absolutely amazing um so you know i think over time yeah we if rome didn't come around i think that's probably the next move is to try maybe i, I wouldn't want to take another ceo though that's just too much of a risk unless i knew them and i slowly groomed them and it uh but it would not be overnight I'd rather give my team a chance.
and see what they can do before. Because I'd rather bet on them than on somebody I don't know. You mentioned before we started the interview a conversation that you had had at the EOS conference, a meeting you had sat in on that was, it was a good segue for the conversation of all the other considerations with making this move. And you shared the the Mount Everest anecdote. Let's start there. Sure. I was at the US conference. It was the one of the last um, parts of the day before coming out to San Diego for broker owner. And um, it's in Indianapolis this year. And I happened to walk into this, this class that I had no idea about. Because again, the one I wanted was, was the doors are closed. And it was about, um, the, it's called Ali Nasser and the business owner dilemma is a book. And he, um, he starts off about, you know, it's, it was about selling your business and making sure you're ready for it. I was like, well, I guess this is kind of relevant because, you know, I wasn't sure yet, but, um, so I sit down and I only the front row is left and he starts going, he goes, and he points at me and he goes, so, so Ben, um, you're going to climb Mount Everest. What's, what's the goal? And I, of course, said, which is the same answer you gave, by the way, is to get to the top. And he goes, wrong. I was like, uh-oh. I hate getting called out in groups anyways. And he goes, no. The answer is you want, you want to climb to the top. You want to summit. And you want to come down safely. And he said, 80% of all deaths happen on the way down of Mount Everest than the way up. And when you go to sell a business, you only have the eyes on how to sell the business you sell it but what happens on the way down and it was a very interesting concept in that yeah i mean no one ever thinks of that you know most most business owners they started out they bring it as a you know out of infancy and they take it and they work their entire life they give up relationships and everything to get to the 200 million dollar exit or whatever it is and these are guys in the rooms like sharing man tears it was crazy but they given up everything. Then they got there and they sold, they get paid, but then they have no fulfillment. They don't know what to do tomorrow. And there, there wasn't a plan. And where are you going to invest that $200 million or whatever, the, whatever your sale price is? Do you have tax planning? Do you have um, your estate set up? Do you have life insurance? Do you have, it, so it was like an EOS model for business owners selling. And I was just clued to this. I was like, what is this? And he gives me a book and I read through it and I, I had everything answered. Luckily, I had pl- planned a lot of things fairly well, I thought, and except for I didn't have an exit plan. And I knew that though, but that's, that was the hardest thing. I didn't know how to exit. It, nobody exited that I saw that I was like, yeah, I want to I go out that way. I hadn't seen that yet. I've seen some people exit, but I still, I could not, exit and say, most of you have your job, <laughs> um, can't promise anything. I got paid a lot of money. See ya. And, uh, you know, and, and also be tied to an earnout or something over years that that was not my, I'd rather just again, keep it and turn it over to somebody else that I trusted. And I just didn't know, but it was a very impactful, um, hour seminar. And, and I read that book and I still, still pick it up. And even afterwards, it's like, you know, there's still some things to figure out there, but it's super interesting. You got to figure out the, what to do on the way down. And also, 
yeah, I sold, but I'm still here. You know, I'm, I'm not necessarily on my way down. I haven't chose to do that yet. And that, that helped with that exit plan mm. is that the realty medic still lives <laughs> and we're still going to move forward. And, you know, I'm still leading it and I just have, I have a boss and I'm okay with that. Charles Riska is a great guy. A lot of respect for him. Rome's doing some cool things. So um, don't have to write that chapter yet. Let's talk about folks that may be thinking about this same consideration. My observation is that the industry does feel like it's in a transitory period mm -hmm. where there's a shifting of the old guard. There is a fair bit of M&A that's already happened. There's more that's likely to continue to happen. Um, if you were advising somebody that's coming to you saying, hey, Ben, this is a great situation for you. I'm thinking about doing this. And obviously, this isn't about who to sell to. The conversation really is about two things, the types of buyers, and mm -hmm. there are very much archetypal buyers that are bigger than any specific company and the um, mapping to your specific goals. How would you advise somebody that's in this conversation? They can see it. They're like three to five years out. They can see that this is where they're headed. How would you coach them through what to be thinking about and preparing for now? Man, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think, I think the difference is having, um, how well run, how, how established is the business, you know, is it ready to take off or is it a little rocky and, you know, it's always good to get to established, ready to sell. Um, but you know, if it is one of the companies that is, is going to acquire and to absorb there, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily but it just depends what kind of business you think you have can you honestly say that this business if i can walk away it's going to run amazingly and it's ready for growth it has all the things it needs or are there some gaps and some things that probably someone else could maybe do it better even with resources um so you know, you always want to get to profitability. You always want to know your numbers. I'll go back to that. I said, even control your expenses and just get onto that financial side and then worry about the process side is, is the next move. And with whatever software or however you do that, you know, hopefully it's lead something. But, um, but it's, it's, there's not a really an easy answer to get it ready to sell. You know, you're either ready or you're not. If you're, going to get it ready to sell. You're just going to get profitable. You're going to reduce your churn. You're going to increase your growth rate. They're going to look over however many years. It's not just the last year. It's over the last few years because they want to see, make sure this isn't a one-time thing and you want to get the, the best number, however that's calculated, you know, to, to make sure you can exit appropriately and whatever makes the best sense for you. Yeah. It's really interesting that you say, get it profitable to get it ready. I find that there's a subset or a class of owners that are really drawn to the idea of not getting it profitable and just going all in on growth and really not worrying or prioritizing about the finances as much. What, what would you say to somebody that feels like that profitability is, is actually going to slow them down? Well, if you're in that big of a growth mode, I, I don't know. It's, it's tough because I grew and was profitable. So, um, bingo, I, right. And I think you have to do it 
in, in conjunction, because if you're growing and putting all of your money in marketing, then you're spending 20, whatever your, whatever your profitability is 30, um, in, into something that's non-sustainable over time. So you got to prove both. You got to prove that you're profitable and can market and grow at the same time. Um, it's not, if, unless you're going to sell on a revenue play, which maybe, maybe that's out there, but, um, at the end of the day, you're not making any money along the way. You're just going to wait for the, the golden at the end of the rainbow or something like that. So I, I wouldn't do it that way. I would, I would run it efficiently and grow and be profitable. I, I don't, I wouldn't choose one over the other. Pivot to the person in the complete other seat, somebody early on. They're looking at the industry. They're getting in. Mm -hmm. They're maybe three to five years in, and it's not super profitable. And they're wondering, is it ever going to be? Is this act? Did I did I choose the right thing? Should I go into property mm -hmm. management? How would you advise somebody early on in the business about what it could be and how to do it right? Um, man, that's tough. If you're not, if you're still struggling and figuring out what's what's up, right? Um, it takes a special person to figure all this. <laughs> this crazy multi-billion dollar industry out. So, um, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, you know, if it's, you know, I would, I would probably look for an acquisition partner earlier than later in, in something like that. You know, if you know that this is so stressful and this is not really going the way you want it to go and you don't see a light at the end of the tunnel, then it's probably finding one of those acquisition partners that would need those doors. And that is go completely different than I answered yeah. than I expected. Well, it's the first one. You got to work on profitability and you got to worry about running a good company. Wow. So, all right. So, summarizing, your answer is basically if you can't figure out how to be After profitable. Three to five years. Well, well, one was early on not knowing how to run the business. Yep. And that that is concerning. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're dabbling. You don't, you're not going out there and researching and finding the right information and you're not implementing. You can't implement. They're, they're, that's okay. Find someone who can find an integrator, go onto US, run it appropriately. Maybe you're not, maybe you're the visionary and you, you need an implementer. Get, get some of those key things into play. But yeah, I don't know. I hear you saying that this business can be profitable and therefore you should make it so. And if you find that you're incapable of doing so, you should go do something else. Oh, yeah, that's what I was saying. That's about the sum of it. I think it is profitable. I think there's a lot of, opportunities absolutely um, you have to be efficient and set it up right and it's, it's very profitable business so i i think it's doable and um majority of the people that i'm talking to are at least in the circles yeah they are they're they're they're, they're doing well so you're not gonna be maybe the first couple of years i wasn't i mean shoot but there was a light though i knew where i had to go i met the right people and things like that so um, but there's, well, how many property managers are there out there? Like 60, 70,000. Yeah. 40, there's, there's some that shouldn't be in it. Oh, undoubtedly. So that's, that's what I'm <laughs> more talking about. If you can't figure it out, but yeah. And you have surrounded yourself with peers who are performing well, shout out to the million dollar mastermind group, by the way. Yeah. They're, they're a great group of dudes. So when you think, <laughs> when you think about, um, building, over this 10 year period, you referred to the metaphor of, Ever of Everest up, down. Mm -hmm. And if you can't get to the bottom, what was the point of going up in the first place? Right. When you think about the sustainability 
for you outside of work over the last this last 10 years? What what are your reflections on how you held it, how you held the tension of this aspiration that you have with everything else, work outside of life, family, etc. I had a hour-long conversation with your wife earlier today. It was great. You have a healthy, vibrant home life. You didn't sacrifice that for for getting this. Mm-mm. But I know there's tension. I know it's not easy. There is yeah. always tension there. Talk me through how you've navigated that. Um, I guess it's it's going to sound corny. It's just, it's a balance, you know. There there are times every day when I left, I had to turn it off, and I left. I didn't. I was home for dinner every night and you know when we were building i turned it back on at 8 30 or 9 until midnight you know and developing whatever it was um but there there has to be a balance in in everything it cannot be all consuming otherwise it's not worth it i wasn't willing to give up 10 years of my life just for one thing Mm. um so having having really good friends experiences you know and traveling keeping your mind fresh and 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 meeting learning other things along the way and not be so focused on just the business uh was super super important along the way um having having good friends yeah and and learning other businesses you know case study and stuff just continuously learning and not getting bogged down for one thing that didn't work um you know allowed me to not you know i might have there there's there's some kryptonite as i call it and Mm. The kryptonite would be a really upset owner, a, 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 an employee that, you know, something, something's wrong, an emotional issue. The, those things are the ones that would keep me up at night because mm. um, they've just like, man, we shouldn't have had that owner, you know, I, or whatever. That process was fixable and I would want to go fix it. Mm. And then I obsess of that. Um, or, or, or any team member who's not happy or why, why, what can we do? How, how do I re-inspire them? How, what, what needs to happen? But outside of those two things, you know, it's a business and we set things criteria up. And once, if that criteria works, like we expect to, a work order comes in after five o'clock. If it's not a, if it's not air conditioning or you're flooding or house on fire, it's going to be fine in the morning. No one else is going to look at mm-hmm. it either. So I'm mm-hmm. not going to stress about that. So we're teaching the teams that and this, you know, there is a, there is a time to go home and there's a time to have fun. And, and then you come back and you're ready to go. Mm. I don't know. Balance. It's, it's so important. It's the journey of a lifetime. There is no quick answer. Yeah. It's a, it's a worthy challenge though. It is. Yeah. Not to be all consuming though. That's, I saw some guys in that room like that and i'm like man you gave up a heck of a lot you know and at the end of the day are you happy and it didn't look like it at least yeah you know i reflect and sometimes it can be a little heavy just to reflect on the fact that there is a, definitely a piece of me that is somewhat compulsive in nature mm-hmm. as an entrepreneur waking up sure. if i'm being honest waking up most days and thinking about work yeah light turns on that thought is there compelling, moving me forward Mm -hmm. to know that a lot of that is always going to be there, but I don't always have to give in to all of it. Mm -hmm. I can be with it. I can have it by my side, but I don't have to be driven by it. I don't have to let it sit in, in the driver's seat. It's definitely, 
it's a, yeah, it's a journey. It is. And sometimes setting up your mornings and setting up your routines and stuff is very, uh, you know, you can adjust to not look at your email or not do certain things. And you got to read the wall street journal from five 30 to six 30 every morning or something. You, you change up how you approach your day it will give you that time to reflect what's important to you. Take some quiet time, whatever those things are and how, and whatever time you do it is super important and not just jump back in. Um, yeah, if I woke up thinking of podio every single morning, I might have slept, go to bed thinking about it because I was working on it so late. But now, you know, yeah, you, you got to wake up and, and I ease myself back into it, make sure I'm making smart decisions and not being just overly consumed with the problem in front of me. That's one of the things I'm really excited to check back in with you like 12 months from now to see what the, the feel vibe difference Mm-hmm. is you know how like i guess how you carry it in your day-to-day kind of background yeah. awareness it'd be interesting but i don't I expect a whole lot to change we'll see i love it yeah and i take that at at face value i would be remiss to not ask you a little bit more on the systems and the process mm-hmm. side ben you have cultivated a bit of a, a reputation in the industry as being known as a systems guy people kind of think of sense and bond they're thinking about tech, they're thinking about some automation, analytics, data, et cetera. I'm in this same game now. Mm -hmm. You've been a great advisor and investor. And in those conversations, part of what we've talked about is change management and helping people calibrate Mm -hmm. and think about what is required to actually get the benefit from technology. And one of the things that's I found really interesting from you from day one is that you were not out preaching, telling everybody else that they should go do exactly what you did. Mm-hmm. I, I felt you being somewhat opinionated about the specific way that you did it uh, when maybe juxtaposed against what you advise for others. Walk me through your thinking. For somebody else that sees what you built and is like, hey, this is incredibly sexy. I want to do it at my office. What's the 411 on, on, how, somebody, on how you think about that opportunity for other people? Yeah, you know, I'm glad your business is around so I can push them that way because taking on a new process and then developing a software around it, that that was where I got extremely lucky in having some skill set that was a perfect match in what I wanted to build out. I could do it myself. And it's it's probably the unique ability out of anything is how to build a process and put it, put some tech behind it which you have which you have formal background in on the process right i right. mean you just mentioned casually your background with processes yeah I, I did that as a business consultant on yeah for siemens energy and then of course all of the processes that in the aviation and nasa you know i had a huge process that i mean and and what exactly um knowing exact statuses and things like that so my whole background led up to this, what I'm doing now. So I, I didn't think that was a, um, I think that was a unique ability to do both. I think it's teachable to set up a good process. Mm-hmm. I think it's teachable to have, use somebody else's good software or have another platform um, to, to then run that process. I think, any, I think the process part's teachable. I don't think the combination is both. And 
when I started to try to explain what I did, you know, I get glazed over eyes and then, you know, how I connected that folio to Podio and all these things, I would be like, I can't, you know, I, it, it's not, it's, if you, you see the matrix or you don't. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting to me is like Podio came through the industry. I'm super comfortable talking about it. I don't feel any like conflict <clears throat> with them as a competitor, et cetera. I remember them coming through the industry. What was that era, Ben? There was like a two a two year window where they yeah, were kind of popping. Eighteen, um, Boost PM, Boost PM, Jordan, somebody. Uh, yep, yep. Boost PM, Todd Breen, those guys brought it, brought that to nature. But you know, it it became such a customizable resource. Is you know, Podio is not the solution. The pro- the perfect process is the solution, right? And then Podio just allows you to keep everything organized right that's all it didn't matter if it's podio or anything else but but when you you and you don't want to create you don't want to re-automate anything that doesn't need to be automated you know you don't want to hit one button and then all of a sudden pm pmas go out and leases go out money is getting spat out yeah because the accuracy you don't you can't guarantee it and how much time did you really save there you know these processes should be what is the current status and what is my next step if I'm not here tomorrow. Can someone else sit down and tell me what the status is and what do I do next? So that's it. And well, there, I guess, and the, it's not that's it. The last part is um, there can never be any duplicate entries. You, you shouldn't have to kick off to type it here and type it here. That can never happen because then it's no longer efficient and you've relied on humans to transpose something. You've introduced errors. Yeah. So. You have to eliminate all of the possibility of error besides stupidity. Honestly, like if they say they hit a button and they didn't do, they didn't, I don't know, type out a lease and they said they, but they said they did, you know, that that's untrainable. Right. You know? Right. So, um, so, so as we, yeah, as we built out those processes, we built them what we thought was the best way of building them, that it was super clear. And they all somehow link together. So we take take the process all the way from renewal. If they moved out, we go all the way through move in. You know that there's a there's a very defined process, and they all link together. So when we built those things out, that it was it was just super clean. Um, but but again, doing the research to build the process, work with the team. What's the right move? And I don't know. I already repeated myself, but the, they sh- you can't automate to automate. You can't use Zapier for to do everything in the world. I mean, it's super cool, but that's not the answer. It becomes a black box. It does, and it'll break. So, where would you advise somebody to start? If it, there's so many different choices, you can get overwhelmed. And what yeah. I see repeatedly, Ben, is somebody that wants to get the whole thing right. Mm-hmm. They want to engineer the whole rocket as one giant system before turning anything on. Yeah. I, I see that you incrementally built something over time progressively. You didn't spend three right. years building the thing out before you were even using it. No. How would you advise somebody to, to navigate where to start and how to incrementally get value? Um, yeah, we started with the renewal process. So I think the renewal, renewals are killer. Yeah. The renewal process is the most important process out of that's going to impact the property manager and the owner. Um, it's the, it's the most important process in that if you can keep the tenant in, you don't have to spend labor, you know, simple. It, it, it's really is, you know, in a way, but that renewal process has to be clean. 
it has to be done by a, a good person and get right right all the way through it. So um, if they are going to move out, that's fine. But now you're kicking off the most unprofitable time for, for an owner ever. And it needs to be done quickly and correctly and relisted properly, inspections done, the whole, the whole world. So that's where the, our main bulk of our business of our processes is when, it, when the tenant says or the owner says, we're going to vacate. You know, then then everything gets incredibly hard and a lot of labor. But we have to keep those things very organized, and, and until we can get it back on the market and released. So, so so what we did was yeah we started with renewals, and then we said okay what's next okay the ten's going to leave and we built the vacant process, and then we built the inspection process, and we built the uh, you know you, you're building out your tenant damages and your estimate we call it the estimate process or unit turnout process. And then, and then you have your leasing process, your application process, your lead process, mm-hmm. the move-in process, and then you continue with all of the one-offs, work orders, late rent, mm-hmm. balance due, mm-hmm. trust. Those are all separate processes that you add later on in life, really. Um, but to control when the house goes vacant, not not by the property manager, but 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 all of them. Like, what is the whole process? Mm. So, mm. Um, everyone does it different, and I'm surprised that you know there isn't some alignment somewhere. Like we, you did the NARPA accounting standards. There should be some level of standards. I mean, I know there's state differences, but there should be some level of standard on how to renew a tenant at least. And then if they do move out, what is the sta- What's the best way of doing it? Because again, my way is not the best way. It's probably a pretty good way mm-hmm. because I did a lot of research to come up with it. And can it be better now? Maybe because I wrote it five years ago. Maybe it needs to be a refresh, but there probably should be some standardization along the way. But if it works for you, you know, everyone has their own little way of doing things differently. You know, why do you do that again? You know, I mean, some, sometimes it makes sense and some people just have a thing about it. And I definitely could be one of those people in some process. You know, we don't do this. We don't do that. I mean, I don't know. Ben, how do you relate to the owner that, seems to be fairly intelligent running a decent business, you know, somebody who's Mm -hmm. not a a clown, they come to you and they say, Ben, I purchased XYZ process automation software and I can't get my staff to use it. How would you diagnose, how have you diagnosed and troubleshot compliance and the lack thereof when Mm. somebody just doesn't like it for whatever reason? I, I personally sit with them and say, show me, show me why you don't like to use this. I want to make sure you fully understand the process that's built, been built in front of you. You know, that's, we're sitting at their desk and they're like, well, look at this. And then I say, I'll take care of that. What, what, what would you like to see? And sometimes I'll build, customize it, but most of the time they don't fully understand how to use it. They're training. Not being personally coached through like on the job training. So I had a person um lisa she's on my leadership team lozano mm-hmm. she she was a late adopter of podio and she would appease by pushing buttons and or doing certain things like the, the last minute clicking of a bunch of tasks yeah just be just so the report would run clean but we kind of knew that and you know it was still early on this is really early on but i would sit with her and be like what and then i would notice she had sticky notes all over her computer like what is that 
well, I need this to remind me to do that. And I was like, no, what, what do you need to be reminded of? And then I'm like, well, that answer is right here. Or that answer is right here. Or you know what? We should probably add. That's a great idea. And I fully understood how she thought she should approach the job mm, mm. and approach the process that, you know, it's not, it's not the person, it's, it's the process. We got to make sure the process is working correctly so it's useful. If they're against it, there's a, there's a barrier to understanding why it's, and we have to explain those things. And we, and then, you know, I would, I would uh, help Lisa. I implemented a couple quick fixes and explained fully how this would work and why, how important it is for this and the impact of everybody else. Like if you don't do this, the impacts are not over here. It's not appeasing me because mm -hmm. your scorecard's good. It's like, if you don't do it here, then the applications app or this app or that app are all going to be incorrect because they're waiting on your information to be right. Um, so I took her notebook away <laughs> and I said, let's try it. And she, she, she happily said, okay, let me try it. And the notebook never came back because she fully invested. And I was right there next to her to say, let me know if it breaks. If this is painful at all, mm -hmm. you don't have to do mm -hmm. it and I will make it unpainful for you. So we had to, I did that with almost everyone, but that was just a, a I want to know, even today, I still do that. Why don't you understand this? And sometimes there's scope creep. Things happen. They've been taught differently. Mm -hmm. And I sit with them now. I'm like, yeah, that's not exactly right. So we always got to go back and re revise the process sometimes. Ben, are there any situations that are maybe less tenable structurally based on the setup and circumstances? I'm thinking about seasoned um, crusty portfolio style management. And they've been doing it that way for 20 or 30 years. Right. And everybody has their fiefdom. Everybody does it differently. Yeah. And it's kind of, you know, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. What do you got to say about that? I was like, it's not broken. C continue. But it, through attrition, fix it. Don't rehire that same level of person when they go. Be ready for the change. But no, they have great employees. There's no reason to take them, remove them or, or break. If you're being profitable and things are working, don't, you don't need to break it. If it is unprofitable, it's a good opportunity because I like change in that it's an opportunity to make it better than it even was before. Mm. Um, but no, it's, I would never break a system that's working. And if you were dealing with um, a skeptic, somebody, maybe one of these um, folks in that scenario I just described, mm -hmm. somebody that's not the owner, somebody that's a team member, and you were trying to um, sell them, you know, if somehow this came up and you were communicating the merits to them. To the owner, it's, it's a different situation, efficiency, uh, error reduction, et cetera. But to the team member, to them, serving them, What's the best case that you can make there? How they're going to benefit by, um, they're going to be more efficient. You know, they're going to be more organized. They're going to be able to make better decisions. I think once they understand how these systems work, you know, they might think that theirs is better, and maybe in some case it it is, but it's probably not better for everybody. It's only better for them. Um, so I would, I would um, 
I would encourage them to realize the impacts of that and why the company needs to make some changes to be better and, and be more um, competitive in the market maybe or and we have new people starting and they don't work the same way. You know, I, I look for other opportunities to kind of show them because at the end of the day, you got to also be convicted that this is the right move right. for the company. Right. And you, you can't just force things because they're shiny. You got to force things because they're the right decision. And you got to be 100% in on it as the owner. You got to say, oh, we're going to try this. Well, probably not going to work. <laughs> I see it driving a lot in the company, including the labor model. You know, your labor model is more opinionated. Mm -hmm. Can you comment at all on the relationship between your labor model and your systems and why it looks, it, it might look different? I mean, our labor model is, you know, we're, we're coaching people without experience through our, through our processes. Is that what Zero mean? experience. Zero experience. Yeah. And you know, the, the buy-in is happening quicker. The training's happening quicker and they're operating at a really high level, really fast because you know, you can't necessarily teach customer service skills or personality testing, which is how we hire. But to train on property management, it's it's not that complicated. No matter who it is, it's not it's not rocket science. Honestly, it's not. <laughs> and we can figure it out. And it, and there's somebody in the company is going to know how to do it if you do get stuck. But knowing how to answer those questions and methodically think through it and critically think those are things that are skill sets that you're looking for when you hire. Mm. So yeah, we, we take, we take the greener approach. You know, we are teaching interns, we can teach remote workers at a high level and they're, they're great. They're, they're a perfect fit for our model. Um, and yeah, we've, we've done well with that instead of hiring the experienced people. Ben, this has been a great conversation. We got to end it here. I got to ask you, man, what's next? I don't know. You know, I'm going to continue just grinding away and um, we'll kind of see where, where this current journey takes us. It's not over yet. Like I mentioned earlier, I'm excited for the next, the next chapter. And it's, you know, for right now, that's running the Realtimex with the Rome partnership. Man, I just want to tell you that being on this journey with you has been like one of the most rewarding parts of what I've done in my career. I have Thanks. so loved seeing the progress that you've made, being able to be in the conversations and then see you stick the freaking landing, brother. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks, Jordan. Appreciate I'm really excited all your support, for you. man. It's been awesome. All I'm right. Be by my side. Until next time. All right, bud. Peace. Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you want to ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing, vexing, something you feel tied up in knots with? Throw it at me. I'll do my best to try and answer that question, to dissect it, to parse out the nuance and maybe help you get a bit more clarity. I'm looking for questions as the basis for creating content and you're looking for answers as the basis for clarity and wouldn't it be perfect if those two things matched up? Drop a comment, send me, send me an email, jordan at leadsimple.com. Let's stay in the conversation. Peace.